The future of the Unicorn model, like, give us a spill. So look, I mean, first of all, whether we can build, like I said, perhaps earlier, five or ten times more unicorns within AAC technology, a lot of that will depend on two I just mentioned, founders and so third, I think we have the foundations in the sector now where, where software has been where do you feel like we are in terms of opportunity within construction? Overall, let me give you a bit of a history of the funding numbers. When we started Fundamental January 19, the industry had received 4.5 billion US dollar of total VC funding over its lifetime, first 30 years. Now we're at 4.5 since that was in January 2019. And then since then, as of December 23, we're at 30 billion, 3-0. And so we're in a really good place right now. I think we'll probably keep doubling or tripling here over the next three to five years in terms of total funding. So it's a very exciting sector to invest your time in as a founder and your money in as an investor. What would you do with $1.8 billion? In the case of today's guest, you'd invest it into becoming the world's leading early stage investor in construction tech, of course. From time to time, we get a guest on our show where the conversation just flows. After an hour and 45 minutes, we had to finally agree to stop recording as Patrick's dog was getting hungry and frankly bored of listening to free people discuss construction technology. But jokes aside, this is one of the most eye-opening and informative episodes we've recorded to date. We were truly honoured to welcome Patrick Hellerman, General Partner at Fundamental. And for those of you who don't know, he is not your typical VC. He actually knows his shit. You're listening to Bricks and Bytes, and in this episode, we discuss how VC funding in construction tech is defying the recession-hit VC ecosystem, showcasing opportunity and resilience unlike other sectors, the existing and future models of unicorn construction tech startups, what shapes the VC world in construction, from exceptional investors through to founder fit, and what happens when a company begins to fail, Patrick's favorite investors, and his way of staying creative while managing a career in VC. If you're enjoying our podcast, you can support us by heading over to www.bricksbytes.show and signing up to our newsletter. This is an easy and free way which helps us keep the podcast going. In addition, you'll receive all of the key insights from the guests we have on, as well as some bonus content about what's going on in the wider world of construction tech. Today, we're also announcing our exciting sponsorship with Shift. BIM often feels overwhelming for contractors. That's why this episode is brought to you by Shift. They'll help you tackle all your digital needs from 3D BIM modeling to BIM strategy and beyond. Visit maketheshift.digital for more information. That's maketheshft.digital for more information. You are listening to Bricks and Bytes podcast, where we take you on a journey in construction, technology, and business. All right, let's get this episode started. So Patrick, how does someone found, that's actually not a word, it's got a red line under it. So how does someone found it or how does someone uh, create a venture capital company, should we say? I mean, in my case, I wish I knew. It definitely was not planned. Um, so I can walk you a little bit through that. But perhaps be before, what, what are some of the more typical or more regular ways how other people found venture capital firms? Um, generally, you say... You can come from all trades of life. Some of the most successful VCs in the world, for example, are former journalists, uh, mm. believe it or not. And, and so you have people coming from all trades. Um, but I would say the more regular way is either you're a former founder, found uh, success, 
um, and, and with that success, also the uh, financial position. And then you use that network and the reputation to start your own firm and you finance your own firm. That's like one regular way. Another one is that, you know, you worked in VC your way up. And at some point you have a strong track record and reputation could also be as an angel, not necessarily as a VC. And then with that track record and the network reputation that you have, you raise a first small fund. For us, it was the latter. Um, us meaning my two partners uh, and myself. My partners come from VC. They, they were exactly that. And I come from corporate and corporate VC. And the three of us teamed up to do Fundamental in late 18, early 19. Oh, wow. Was so, it, so were, you, were you doing like angel investing before that? Yeah, I was. I was. I wouldn't call myself the most prolific angel investor back then, but I had done one or two good things. Um, and my partners had a very strong track record on the VC side. I, they actually each invested. So Shub invested in two unicorns from the seed stage and Adam invested in, I think, eight or nine unicorns. So oh, wow. has it always been construction for you guys? Um, and retrospectively, why do you, how do you, why do you think uh, you've become what you are in terms of venture capitalists? Yeah, I'm loving this question. So no, Martin, the uh, construction was never on the roadmap in, in my <laughs> first, uh, like, like uh, I was 11 years into my career when we, when we founded Fundamental, N never. I was in a large engineering firm that had some construction business, but that wasn't part of my role. Um, I come from energy, energy management and clean tech. Um, so that, that was my background. My partners come from consumer as well as from industrial and B2B, but none of us from construction. Um, now, we're very excited about what we're doing, and that has a lot to do with the market, the timing, what founders and the founder community are building. Um, so from a, we came at it from a very macro uh, perspective, and, and we're liking all the macros uh, about construction. So in spite of mm -hmm. us not coming from the sector, we feel like we belong to it now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and, and uh, like construction is obviously a little bit of a tough, I mean, construction and like prop tech uh, so the, the lines are getting quite blurred between them. I was reading an article earlier about how... Not in my head. No? <laughs> okay, cool. We'll keep it separate. Um, do you like, where do you feel like we are in terms of the opportunity within construction? Like, I think there's some statistics out there that funding, at least maybe not last year or the year before, was at an all-time high. So do you yeah. think that trend will continue? Um, so I can mm. bore you with a few numbers. But I, I think they're exciting, yes, but perhaps other people feel more bored by it. But... Uh, um, Construction, if you look at it from the founding statistics as well as the funding statistics, is actually counter-cyclical to the overall um, recession that the VC ecosystem has seen in many other sectors. Um, overall, let, let me give you a bit of a history um, uh, of the funding numbers. So overall, when we started Fundamental January 19, uh, the industry had received 4.5 billion US dollar of total VC funding over its lifetime first 30 years right how many now sorry? we're at 4.5 okay. since you know that was in in january 2019 and then since then as of december uh 23 we're at 30 billion three zero wow. right and so typically what you've seen in other sectors is there was the 2020 and 2021 boost to funding mm. um covid and we printed money and etc you know all the drill um in construction, it was actually different. Construction didn't have its peak in 21. Um, construction tech kept getting a record high in 2022. And, and we as Fundamental also had a pretty uh, stellar um, year of 2022 with a number of uprounds, etc., which was very counter-cyclical to what other sectors and other VCs would report. Um, and it actually kept going into 23. Um, and I did an analysis then a couple of weeks back 
where actually the peaks that we have since uh, January 2022 to today are higher than any peak we ever had before 2021. So we're in a really good place right now. Um, I think we'll probably keep doubling or tripling here over the next three to five years in terms of total funding. So it's a very exciting uh, sector to invest your time in as a founder and your money in as an investor. So question to it, if we are peaking right now, how do we know that the peak is still going to progress further and it's not, it's, we should not be exiting? No idea how I know it, but, uh, <laughs> but perhaps a couple of proxies perhaps that give me conviction here to keep going, right? Um, so number one is perhaps a macro thesis that we're having. It's one of our theses as fundamental is that we believe that generally all, all sectors transform in waves. By waves, I mean like the first wave of founders, they typically lay certain foundations in terms of their software that generates a new amount of data, certain processes get digitized, the customers get used to newer software, and then the second wave gets to build on top of that. They get to integrate that data, and, and then the third wave at some point consolidates it, etc. Right. So I know this sounds very abstract, but it's actually something that has played out in many sectors from fintech, logistics, etc. And we think we just concluded this first wave in construction. So that, that's one uh, perhaps proxy, Martin. And the other one that, that I would reference here is um, other sectors, they, they say that, oh, customer activity and the revenue I can get from customers has gone down since 21. In construction, we're seeing the exact opposite. And that has to do with the fact that construction um, seems to be at a point where the company, the customers, think general contractors or manufacturers, are less utilized in their business than they were in the peak years of the last you know, decade or so. Um, and so that means that for the first time in this very project-driven business that we're in, the excess utilization or excess capacity, I should say, that they have, they actually put into innovation. They put into changing the infrastructure of their business. They put it into changing the processes of their business, which they never had to do over the last decade because they mm -hmm. were at capacity, right? Mm -hmm. And they didn't have the time for it. And so that's mm -hmm. why construction actually right now seems to be spending more on software than they did over the last decade or so. Mm, so you're saying that this is the, uh, if they have more capacity, they would not reduce uh, some resources to de decrease the costs, but they still have money to invest in software. It's exactly what we're seeing. Okay. And, and thanks for calling that out, Martin, real quick. So um, I would say 15 years ago in, in, the, in the big crash 2008, mm -hmm. the company reaction would have been to lay off workforce. Mm -hmm. Now, in 22, 23, 24, in the Western world, these companies know if they lay off workforce, they will not get them back. It will not happen. And so the mm -hmm. workforce crisis will happen even further. So what they are doing is they're using this excess capacity to actually change their infrastructure um, for the first time in, in you know, many years. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. So I'm very surprised you have not mentioned word interest rates, saying talking about macro and like how it impacts construction. So that uh, interest rates don't, they don't in your view they don't have any impact on like where we are with the money and with the investments. What's your thoughts? What are your thoughts on this? No, I th super smart question. So um, in in general, they have had a big impact uh, on the VC market overall. They have had less of an impact on the AEC technology market overall, but I think that has mainly to do with the fact of what small of a basis we were growing from, right? So to give you an example, if in, in all sectors combined, um, we spend, 
it's a random number now, but you know, you can look it up 250 billion in a year of venture capital. Mm-hmm. Um, and then interest rates rise and now you only get to spend 80 billion. Those companies in those sectors, especially in those growth stages, they get impacted a lot. Now in construction technology or AEC technology at the time when the, when the interest rates were rising in, uh, uh, you know, 18, 24 months ago, actually 18 months ago, we were still at a point where we had a, a cumulative total of just 15 billion over 30 years invested. So the impact for these companies, you know, it was for a handful of growth stage companies that were impacted a bit by it. But overall, as a sector, we were so underinvested that we didn't feel it as much. That's one part. And the other part is so we invest globally. And actually, when you when you refer to inv- interest rate environment, what we've learned is you really have to look at local markets because what's happening in the Middle East, for example, and what's happening on India, they're on a very different economic cycle mm-hmm. and also with different interest rates. So India has always historically had six times higher interest rates than the US, for example. And so the impact there, for example, is completely different than what we had in the US or in Europe. Very interesting. So last last question on this subject. You mentioned it till 2019 or 17, I can't remember, it was $4 billion within VC that was injected within VC. And from that till kind of 2022, it was 30 or something, right? So where mm-hmm. does this money come from in terms of, uh, is it, or people, <laughs> no, like people suddenly uh, are more mature and they want to invest in technology and, and, and in every, or everyone wants to become a VC or FOMO as you once said, I don't, I don't know what, what, what do you say? I mean, FOMO is not necessarily a source of capital, but it's certainly uh, a, a dynamic <laughs> right, in how it right, gets right. distributed. Yeah. Um, so I think in terms of source of capital, we all go to the same sources of capital as a venture capital industry, right? It's large institutional um, investors that make up the the like lion's share of this. And there's family offices, and then you might have operators, former operators, former founders that also chip in, right? Mm-hmm. So that generally, those are the sources uh, of capital. Um I think where what pays more into your question is the distribution of it. So it's not like overall as an industry, we, we have more capital available, quite the opposite, as you can see by, by many numbers. The, we call it dry powder, which means the available capital under, under commitment or under management has actually gone down since 2021, but it gets distributed and routed into AEC technology. Here, here's another interesting stat. So construction famously is about 10% of the global GDP as an economy. We all know this stat. As a portion of the overall VC, construction tech was at 0.15% in 2019. Mm -hmm. And today it's about 0.4%. So it roughly tripled in terms of its proportionality. And yet it's a long, long way to go to the 10%. Mm. I'm not saying we're getting to 10% of VC. It's not like that, but but what this demonstrates is that of the overall available venture capital, much much more now gets routed into construction technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, why why do you think that is then? What's what's exciting people about construction? But most of the industry works by macro thesis, right? So they they look at markets, they look at the big mega shifts, at the big trends. We do that, and a lot of the peers that we admire 
also do it that way. And so the routing is often, or the, the capital allocation to a sector happens before you even see a great company. You're just saying, hey, into that space, I know I need to allocate capital. And so every, all the numbers that we are now exchanging, that's on people's minds. And they see something is happening. They see that the second wave is kicking in, people building on what's been built before. I think that's the main reason. And secondly, we see that, that you know, there are companies that are tasting success. We're going to talk about unicorns. We have you know, we have 17 unicorns right now actively uh, in construction tech for a market our size. That's probably five to, to 10 times too low of what the market would sustain. Again, that's something that investors are seeing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in okay. terms of this percentage of money within construction, within VC, within construction tech, um, is there, could you compare it with any other industry? You said 0.4%. Uh, it's within VC, uh, right? But is there any like comparison to other industry? Maybe, I don't know. Um, uh, <laughs> Take a while, guess. <laughs> is it like more, is it more or is it less or is this the same? I have not done that analysis recently, so I couldn't give you like a, a current like for like, mm -hmm. but how about I give you a very interesting chronological comparison um, that, that we at least at Fundamental find super instructive about the development of, of construction tech. Mm -hmm. So when, when we started Fundamental um, in, you know, it was January 19, but before that was a year of diligence that we did. And within that year of diligence, we originally did this uh, analysis for the first time. And it was, we looked at several different other technology sectors, fintech, logistics tech, we looked at prop tech, uh, travel technology, and a few others, each in its own right, very large economic sectors and sectors that have seen a lot of uh, founder success and venture capital funding. And then we analyzed, hey, how much time did it take each of the sector from when they were at 5 billion cumulative VC mm -hmm. to 10 billion? So how mm -hmm. much time did it take from 5 to 10? And then how much mm -hmm. time did it take from 10 to 50? Mm -hmm. And Martin, you wouldn't believe how remarkably consistent the pattern is. It's always mm -hmm. six to eight years from 5 to 50. Always. Mm -hmm. Some of them need six, some of them need eight, but nobody needs 15 and nobody needs four, right? So all of them were in their time frame. And so now when we started Fundamental, we were at 4.5, right? So just about to cross the 50, now we're at 30, six years later, right? Mm -hmm. So for us, th that's been so instructive to see that construction tech and AEC technology follow the general pattern that you always see. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Sounds like you know your data, Patrick, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sorry, I, me I mentioned something earlier about uh, like uh, obviously you guys are very focused on um, construe tech as as you uh, like to call it or AEC tech or insert some word related to construction tech field. Um, <laughs> but a lot of like whispers discussions I've had with people is that uh, and even the article that I sent you earlier that um, I was reading before our interviews like the the lines between like construction tech and uh, even prop tech to an extent are converging. So are you following that or are you, are you, uh, are you, are you kind of like against that um, uh, theory? Um, not following very, very closely. W would love to hear what, what, what the whispers are. Um, so perhaps you can, can share, but um, in general, for me, the lines are very strongly delineated. Um, and that is because the way you optimize building operations and building transactions, let's say that's prop tech, and the way you optimize construction and the design for construction, let's call that ConstruTech or AEC tech, the optimization levers are extremely different. 
So for building operations and transactions, I need to have software that helps me keep my utilization high, that keeps my operating cost extremely low. And I run in a, in a running process. I have a controlled environment. Everything that I, you know, I think will, will happen has a high likelihood of happening. Construction and the design for construction is a project business. And so everything, you know, famously, you know, is a first of its kind and, and, you know, it's an uncontrolled environment. There's weather involved, there's supply chains involved, there's lots of interdependent variables involved. The way I optimize a construction project and its design is this through the supply chains, not through the operations. So we keep saying that construction is a supply chain business. It's not an operations business. And so that's why in my mind, the technological solutions and the business model solutions that you need for either of these two sectors, they couldn't be more different. And so, yes, both are dealing with buildings. I think that's about the only commonality that they have. Interesting. Yeah, so just to quote the, uh, quote the article, it said that uh, AEC tech and prop tech are converging. And then the quote taken from there is 20% of AEC tech companies also address at least one prop tech use case, linking the design and operation of building management systems using a digital twin. I can't really interpret that in my head, but sounds like they know what they're talking about. Mm. I, I kind of, I must say, I kind of like it. I, I see some logic in it. I don't, I don't necessarily would say anecdotally I would see it in the market the way the article makes it sound. But uh, I mean, I also have no data to refute it. Mm. Yeah, yeah fine. I also think that if we, if every building is uh, designed in a way that you can store this data, the design data, and they are in 3D and BIM, then this can be very beautifully utilized later during the maintenance sure. uh, stages of the building. And that's where it actually converges quite nicely because we've got this, this great construction data and then it is, the building is handed over to people who are going to maintain it and use for the next 60 years. And then and exactly they know what's where, what needs replacing, and that's where this digital twin uh, portion comes in. I, I don't know what's the percentage of the buildings built use this, utilize this kind of exchange, but it's probably 0. Mm. 0.00001. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's but less I, than I, that 0. 0.45 Patrick was talking about earlier, that's for sure. <laughs> I think that's a very fair point that you're making, Martin, and, and probably that would be the, the top one example where that convergence really would, would happen. Um, like you two, I think in practice, it's still proving quite difficult. I mean, I, I, I like to say careers have been ruined on the promise of capturing as built back into BIM. I mm. think, you know, lots of people promising it. Very mm. few to this day actually have a, I think, scalable solution for that. Mm. Whoever builds that hopefully will help us bridge that convergence. Mm -hmm. mm. Okay. Um, Petra, you mentioned unicorns and it's going to be a, a subject we jump into quickly, but sorry, broadly, but, um, in terms of fundamental, what are you guys, uh, looking at right now? Like what's hot and uh, where do you, where do you see, see the industry going? What is unicorn? <laughs> okay. Fair question. Yes. So unicorn is again, that that's VC jargon, venture capital jargon. Um, I think the term is only 10 years old and it means basically a company that gets valued in the private market by investors like us or other investors at a billion dollars or higher as a company value. So that, that's what a unicorn refers to. It, it, by the way, as you can see by this definition, a unicorn should not be used as a stamp of approval or like a quality stamp because some mm -hmm. companies get valued at a billion and you would say, okay, perhaps the business isn't all that good. And some companies are very, very solid businesses, even if they are not a unicorn. So I wouldn't use it as a stamp of approval. Um, 
but it's an easy way of kind of sort of objectively cluster companies. Um, what we are looking at right now, generally as a as a uh, early stage venture investor, you're looking at everything within the investment scope. That's not different for us. So we look at five generally five sectors in our scope. We look at design technology and 3D technology that includes computer aided design. We look at uh, construction technology. We look at renovation, including energetic renovation. We look at supply chain and logistics technology, and we look at blue collar workforce robotics technology. Mm -hmm. So that's generally the stuff we look at, and we don't look at prop tech, by the way. So what, what we, what we uh, <laughs> <Just to laughs> discussed earlier, <laughs> yeah. And now, generally, Owen, within that, we we look at uh, you know every founder that um, that builds in this space, but. There are some spaces that, that we invest more time in than others right now. One of them is robotics. Um, we think the workforce problem in the Western world is um, irreversible and it will contribute to inflation uh, very significantly unless we can build robotic supply to build buildings. Yeah. So that's one um, that we look at uh, a lot. Second is data infrastructure. So we a lot of people talk about AI and et cetera. And, and of course, that's a very important trend. But we actually think that within our sectors, um, the ability to connect data before you can build very strong AI applications on top of it needs to be built as a baseline or as a foundation first. So that's why we get very excited about uh, data infrastructure. I could keep going, but perhaps the third one um, that we really like is generally the redesign of the design stack uh, for architects, for engineers, and also how to work with BIM in a multiplayer fashion, uh, fashion in construction. So the design stack overall has been something that we invested a lot in. Mm -hmm. So, oh, and where, do you, where would you like to go with it? Because well, I, I think questions. that you might be you might be interested in the design stack stuff, mine. So, if you want to ask a question on that, go for mm -hmm. it. If not, we'll go straight into the the existing unicornism. Mm -hmm. So, touching touching on the design. Um, so, what I'm very curious because uh, as a structural engineer, I deal with various forms of design and BIM and 2D, 3D, and and all this kind of stuff and. I, I, I was starting my university in 2005, I think. Um, and Damn, we, you're old. No, it's and and they were and obviously there was there was Revit there, there was Autodesk there, AutoCAD, and it seems to me that nothing has moved significantly. It's all <laughs> kind of the same, similar. All of the files are it's all it's all the same. It's just it's just more colorful. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so that's great. I'm just very because I'm not I'm not tracking this market or this hmm. um, or technology how it um, how it evolves and you know what's the what's the latest within within the sector but just looking at um, from someone who who touches on design every day um, there's nothing that has moved the needle to like a broader audience so like everyone can use this solution or this software and this just 10x is the daily workflow and it makes it much more approachable. And you don't have to mm -hmm. be a Revit expert with very little of Revit experts in the world to get something done correctly. Yeah, yeah we need like a Figma or something for construction, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. What what do you what can you say to that? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so th this we can make its uh, entire own episode. It, it's such a passion oh. topic uh, mm -hmm. of mine, but I'll try to be concise. Mm -hmm. um, so in general, the, the observation that authoring tools such as Revit have a very uh, rough learning curve, I completely share that. I mean, you guys know this much better than me, but you know, I, I've 
looked at Revit, I think Revit in itself has several hundred of functionalities and buttons that you can click within Revit. And so it takes you these 10,000 hours or 10 years of practice to even unlock like the base set of functionality and gain routine in it. And that also means in terms of building the technology, you know, it, it takes you 10 years or more to build a peer product that is significantly better, but at the same time does what Revit needs to do for its users. And now linking that quickly to something we said about the funding stats, the, the sector up until 2019 hadn't gotten a lot of VC funding, which means that founders that wanted to build an authoring tool, a better authoring tool, a Figma-like authoring tool, they probably didn't get the funding. So you needed to build this airplane while being profitable to maintain your company. In, insanely difficult to do, right? Now what's different, so good news, Martin. Exactly. Now the money is there. And, and so that, that um, has led to founders like Altaf at Snapshot actually building Figma for BIM. He's building a multiplayer, uh, browser-based, cloud-first, you know, peer to some of the tools that are, that are out there. I think he's doing a terrific job. Rayon is doing the exact same thing, but for the 2D applications um, within the BIM space. I call it BIM Lite, right? So that's something. There are other founders like the Kionic guys, the Arcol. Uh, team, etc. They they are all building this, and so they can do that now because there are investors who are believing in their vision, that are believing that uh, this sector is actually transforming, and so that's something that I think the incumbents have become aware of, and they can't count on the sector being underinvested anymore. So that's one. Very quickly, mm -hmm. a second one. I I personally think that the most transformative technology and change in the design stack is actually. Going away from files combined with multiplayer and mm -hmm. an, a data infrastructure that is integrated. So think something like Speckle, for example. It doesn't have to be Speckle, but something like that. You're moving away from a one-to-one -one relationship between one user and one software on one file. That, that's the norm. Mm -hmm. You're moving into a streaming ecosystem. I call that N2N, where you can have N number of users and everyone works in their software. One works mm -hmm. in Blender, the other one works in Rhino, the third one works in Revit without a file where mm -hmm. the model is completely transcribed in the object graph and the, the file is eliminated. And when you make your edit, I see your edit in my uh, software. And so that's a streaming future. And now that is interesting. Mm -hmm. Final point, that is interesting because it changes the distribution channel. Because mm -hmm. historically, incumbents have always been able to rely on, let's say, decent or mediocre software, but they had the best customer access through their resellers, etc. In a multiplayer world, that is not an advantage anymore because now Owen can invite Martin to the model and Martin can work in his model, in, in his software, and Martin can invite me to the model and I can work in my software. So the distribution advantage gets eradicated by multiplayer browser-based. And I think that's something that incumbents don't necessarily have an answer for. So this only solves, in my view, uh, something that you sh that should have been solved 10, 15 years ago, what BIM was meant to offer, right? Which is the collaboration between people. Welcome to construction. Yeah, <laughs> collaboration between people and so that I could work on a model, someone simultaneously could, could work on a model. It still doesn't uh, feel to me that it's going to like make the design much quicker. And so 
It right. doesn't take two weeks to make a revision and then architects looks at my revision and then he makes a decision if it's the, if everything is fine and then it, it takes him a week to check it and then it sends back me little amendments. It takes two weeks and then I send in, send him back next week or it just takes five weeks to change something small, right? For these large projects. Yeah. So, um, maybe I'm asking for too much, <laughs> but or t- trying to simplify it too much as well, but, um, it feels no. like there, there is a long way to, to get it uh, done much more efficiently. So look, you referred, Martin, you referred to the 10x improvement, right? So I think 10x in terms of efficiency, that's unlikely. Um, I, I don't necessarily think that that's also what you need because 10x, for example, in terms of strategic dependence on a specific software vendor, And now all of a sudden you're not dependent on that software vendor anymore because your data gets stored in your own data infrastructure. If you define a 10x perhaps that way, where you can get strategically independent, I think that's actually happening right now. Um, And I do think also that in terms of the timeline that you need to run a project, you can probably achieve a 2x. I I think so. You know, the, the example that you gave about how many weeks you have to wait until someone has an input, once you work actually without exchanging files, and mm-hmm. you have a true versioning. That's mm-hmm. something that Speckle does as well. Um, you have a GitHub-like experience. And now you send your model to an external consultant to do, for example, a fire uh, simulation, um, you know, as, as one example. Mm-hmm. You know, in the file-based world, that, that takes you the weeks. In the, in the world that, that we're entering right now, I, I really think you're probably condensing it down to three to four days. Mm-hmm. I'll just add to it that I recently had a chat with someone and they said that you will never get uh, like uh, transparency between people and working on the same model because uh, there is a legal issue that uh, everyone creates their own model and then um, it cannot be used for blah, blah, blah. It only can be used for blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And it just, it's just a mess, like a legal mess. I can't use this. Yeah, it just doesn't make sense. <laughs> Sometimes. Yeah, here's your manufacturing drawings that can't be used for manufacturing. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like it's sometimes as silly as silly as that. Mm-hmm. Um, I have more questions. In in fact, on that topic, Martin, I wanted to touch on um something that you sent to me the other day to listen to about the eighteen ninety. Mm-hmm. Um, do, do you remember it? Could you explain it probably better than me? And yeah. uh, if you think you can frame a question yeah. around that. Yes, yeah, so I'm a very big fan of a podcast called the All In Podcast. And uh, so one of the um, founders of this podcast, uh, Chamat Polyhapati, I think, um, yeah, uh, he is setting up an incubator called 1890, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, is planning to, and the mission of this incubator would be to create copy businesses, um, which will have 80% of functionality of these businesses with 90% cost reduction. Yeah. So you don't, you don't copy and paste the exact business, but you, you get 80% of functionality and 80%, 90% of the reduction of the cost of the subscription of the business. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the yeah. key thing was like utilizing AI, right? And the tools that, that is now enabled that people to do, like you type something and it produces a 50 slide PowerPoint in the, in the instance of Microsoft. Um, what's the question? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. You had a question, right? Yeah. <laughs> I get. I guess it was like, do you think anything like this with the um, advent of, of what AI is doing for the industry, mm. do you think that, that this like could exist in construction? So I think also I, I could add to this actually, because the reason for, for him to create this incubator was to decrease the fees of, of some, some sort of software um, subscriptions, because sometimes you can... Uh, there, it was about software. cap tables. 
Yeah, they were talking about cap tables and it, apparently to find like information on cap tables is like very expensive and da 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 da, -da complicated. And See. someone said that they had done it almost for free using AI tools or some, something along those mm. lines. I'm probably butchering it, but yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so to, to add to this as well, a little bit maybe. Uh, so there is this theme with technology that uh, technology should be driving the cost of service or, uh, or delivery of a good to, towards zero. Because once technology gets better, um, mm -hmm. then we should have, we should pay less for, 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 for the output because there's this Moore's law and it all kind of doubles every 18 months. So, um, yeah, so basically the theme is that we should not be paying as much for the, for, for all of the software, if it's just a software and it should be de declining in the value in the cost rather than, than increasing. But, um, there are business models. I think venture capital is based on that, that if the, if the solution is good and it can scale and it can keep certain margin of the revenue, then, uh, it's a very good business to invest in. Right. Um, but it just, in my head, it just contradicts, um, like the, the theme of technology and improvement and decrease of the cost um, based on the, on better technologies. Yeah. There's no question there really. <laughs> I think the question, I had the question, it was what, what do you think like this 80%, uh, efficiency or 90% cost reduction in construction exists? Okay, but but your question is not about the software part, right? That that Chamat wants to challenge. We Maybe, can explore well, that as well. We'll answer that, yeah. <laughs> okay, I mean, look, um, I haven't spent much time on on Chamat's thesis about whether he can um, build companies that can deliver service ninety percent cheaper than existing software mm -hmm. uh, services. So I I can't speak from a position of authority right now, but my gut reaction to that is I, I would ask anyone doing that software is already a zero incremental cost business. Mm -hmm. that, that's the whole appeal of software. So I have development cost, but then I can multiply it as much as I want, right? So it's the modern Gutenberg Bible. How, how do you get from zero incremental cost minus 90% to something cheaper? So that that's for me is something, so you can probably save on the development, but mm -hmm. but then everything after that is just you basically choosing to offer a cheaper price point, right? But your competitor also has zero marginal cost on that. So then it, you you get it down to development cost, engineering cost, and mm -hmm. to distribution cost. In the distribution, I, I would have yet to understand how someone with that thesis thinks that AI will help them with distribution. On the development side, yeah, AI will for sure have a big impact on how you can develop software to like an 80% feature set. So that part I would believe in, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you um, won't face uh, pr price competition from the incumbents that have established software as well, have written all the development of blah, 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 and operate at marginal cost of zero as well. So that, that part of the thesis from a gut perspective is something that I would want to look deeper into. Mm -hmm. Now, could you find a similar... Um, factor in construction. So let, let's split construction into the knowledge and into what's happening physically. Physically, moving material, moving people, moving machines. T tell me how someone gets a 90% cheaper labor, 90% um, <laughs> cheaper material. Like, like that would be insane physical or chemical no, uh, so innovation. He, was, he, was, he meant SaaS businesses really, right? Yeah. He, he didn't mean the, like a tangible goods or anything, but SaaS yeah, businesses. Yeah, well, 
We're related it. to construction. Yeah. But keep in mind, so the reason why I'm splitting between these two, Martin, right, between the physical world and the knowledge or information world of construction is that mm -hmm. the, the uh, profit and loss statement of a construction company is made up, you know, to a large degree, not by overhead, but by what's actually happening physically. So that would be one part of why I don't think you would find a 90% reduction necessarily in I most agree. of the construction businesses. When it just comes to the portion of, let's say, information, knowledge, and, and then the risk element and managing the risk, which is a bit, bit, big part of what construction is, um, yeah, I do think you can actually get 90% or more uh, improvements there just because of how unintegrated and unintelligent some of our knowledge exchange within the industry is. There, I would have absolutely no doubt that AI will actually tend to 100x or more um, this industry once we adopt it. But... I will come back to something I said earlier. I think data integration and data infrastructure is actually a step, the more exciting step before we get there. Now, that, that will happen very quickly now over the next few years, though. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Okay, right. We've dragged, we've dragged on enough without uh, going on to this subject. So we'll come <laughs> back to the VC questions uh, a bit later. But we want to touch on um, unicorns in construction tech. Obviously, we have you touched on it a little bit. So let's, let's dive a little bit deeper into that. So um, we're... Patrick, we're going to talk about the the, uh, the business models of construction, the construction tech unicorns that exist, and there's currently 17 of them spread across the globe. Um, okay, so aside from the the obvious, what makes a construction tech unicorn, and um, what are they doing so well? And aside from being notoriously patient, so because one key thing to point out here is like an instance of Procore and Aconex. These are like pushing Aconex 17 years, Procore. I don't know the exact number, but I think it's around 20 years or so before they had a billion dollar valuation. And technically, they are a public company as well, right? So they didn't quite fit sure. the definition earlier. But yeah, good yeah, for not, it. Not anymore, but but they did for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so we're down to 15 <laughs> as, of, yeah. as of this conversation. <laughs> exactly. But, uh, you know, this year will be a good year and 2025 will be good to, to our industry as well. So I have no doubt that we'll probably double this uh, at some point wow. in, in the not too distant future. But, uh, mm -hmm. but yeah, I mean, to your, to your question, I really loved it because it made me think about that a lot. And so I think there's something very specific to the architecture, engineering, construction technology and what a strong business that that could be a unicorn has to do to serve in this sector and it wouldn't apply to other sectors number one you need to have a commitment to instant outcomes this sector will not pay you as a as a you know software company or as a marketplace if you promise them hey in a year from now you will see the impact it's not possible in a project business you need to have that wall in place next week or you need to have the electrical circuit in place in four weeks from now it's a very much an outcome uh, driven industry. And so mm -hmm. if you promise an impact in a year and you need a lot of training and onboarding and, and you know, you're, you're not finding much success. So what a lot of these unicorns have in common is they create instant outcomes. That That's one. Secondly, they typically monetize an existing line item in the profit and loss statement. So here's a cool example. When you're in robotics, it's actually quite simple to sell your robot as a service, as a contractor into a construction project so if you try to sell the robot oh do i know how it works and i need to train my people difficult but if you say hey I, I sell you the wall it's in your profit and loss budget anyway i just happen to do it with a robot it actually works mm. the counter example which i was fascinated by i only learned this two or three months ago mm. there's a um, robot out there that drills holes and it's a very tedious task, especially if you have like 30,000 holes overhead in a, let's say, high rise. So 
normally you would think, hey, this is a really worthwhile process solving with robotics. The problem mm -hmm. is there is no line item in the profit and loss statement most of the times for it because mm -hmm. the whole is part of the ceiling. Mm. They, they just budget it that way. So now if you're a robot trying to contract this out, mm. but you're trying to sell it per hole, the contractor says, I haven't budgeted for it. I, I bought the entire ceiling. So mm -hmm. th that serves as an example of like when you monetize a line item in the profit and loss statement, it becomes relatively simple to do business in construction. And so that means that these two items taken together, instant outcomes, PNL line item monetization, if you take those together, I love to think of unicorns in construction as a commonality. They are service as a service businesses. That sounds completely stupid, but what it means is you're building technology to deliver a service, you to deliver an outcome. And that seems to work really well to become a big business. Mm -hmm. So just of out of curiosity, out of these 15 remaining, uh, uh, what sort of percentage would does kind of like everything is like a one-stop shop or uh, how many of them are focused on a single improving single activity within construction Ooh. or maybe it doesn't question. need to be like any, any precise kind of data right but uh, so maybe let me rephrase that so you think that would you would you say that unicorns in construction would be focused on uh, like a one-stop shop solution or more very specific task, which just solves so much within one kind of area. Yeah. Um, when I when I look at the logos here, I would venture to guess that almost all of them, when they started, started with a very narrow value proposition. For example, we in our portfolio are very early investors in the in, uh, unicorn infra market. Today, Martin, to your terminology, it's a one-stop shop for construction materials for contractors across Asia. It started with just two building materials categories mm -hmm. six years ago, right? And so um, when I look at some of the other names here, all of them very likely started with a narrow proposition where they created that instant outcome, not much training required, you know, uh, they tapped into an existing PL line item. But over time, they creeped into other categories that mm -hmm. satisfied customers were also asking for. Mm -hmm. I, I would, by the way, argue that that's also how Procore started. Mm-hmm. Mm. So that's like a perfect example of that is outside of construction Amazon, right? Just books and then everything, mm -hmm. even manufacturing their own stuff right now. Exactly. I mean, mm. VCs have like a jargon for everything. I guess the applicable VC jargon here is what, what we like to say is come for the features, stay for the platform. Mm. Come for the features, I think also when, when you're transitioning for something that was then was say built on the web, but then moved to like being um, native to mobile or tablet. That's when uh, companies experience a lot of success. So I think like an instance of Facebook moving when mobile came out, they acquired Instagram. And uh, that's when things started like taking off. Um, Very true. Likewise with Procore. So when uh, when we, we spoke to them in September this year, and it was basically when their platform started moving to mobile and people could actually use it on the job sites when mm -hmm. they started really noticing things um, taking off. So Procore is one of the examples. Um, and one of the business models, Patrick, was... Workflow software. So, mm -hmm. what's what's the uh, give us the lowdown? So, look, I mean, in in this category of unicorns, like you said, oh, Procore technically is not a unicorn anymore, but it was for the longest time. Um, we have Aconex, which was bought by Oracle, um, and Procore, which uh, had its public listing. And so, these are two unicorns in the workflow software space that basically are cloud-based management platforms for contractors um, in a subscription as a uh, software as a subscription model um, which help with scheduling task management integrating documents punch lists 
in a real-time collaboration way, right? And so it's quite interesting, actually, that since Aconex and Procore, nobody has cracked that category anymore. So there's no Procore for Europe. There's no Procore for Asia yet. And so that, that's, uh, that's something that I think some investors have really bet on. But this whole space has sort of plateaued a little bit. Mm -hmm. mm. So I know one unicorn in construction. I will not mention name, but I know one which has been going for 20 years and is not profitable. All right. <laughs> so <laughs> is it, is, are companies like that going to be profitable at all? Or what is it all about? Uh, Inframarket, the unicorn I mentioned earlier, is actually net profitable. And it has been from day one. It's cash flow uh, positive. Mm. It's net profitable. So I'm kicking us off with like an example. Um, yes. yes, absolutely, it's possible. Um, I think I know which company you are referring to, but there are a lot of companies in this list that would fit that. So mm -hmm. One of them has the numbers public, so you know mm -hmm. you can just look it up. Um, but 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 you know, with, with levity here, all jokes aside, no, absolutely, you can build profitable businesses in construction. Um, the more you monetize an outcome, for example, through transactions or through participation in financial services it's easier to be net profitable from day one or let's say year one. Whereas if you monetize software only, mm -hmm. it's much more difficult to create that instant outcome for a customer. And you have much more upfront investments into both engineering and distribution of your software, which delays that timeline to profitability in, in like you say, in some ways, you know, very far into the distant future. So my point or my contention here, Martin, is yes, it's possible. Absolutely. And you're more likely if you can monetize transactions, financial services as an outcome. Mm -hmm. mm. Just from uh, like a friend's first principle thinking, like if something has been going on for so long and it's not profitable, like what is the path to, to that? And is it going to be achieved or are we just having fun and... Um, Waiting for, I don't know. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, now, now you're going into the territory, you're even asking whether venture capital should be a model in the first time. <laughs> because the yeah, because you guys, you guys, well, I'm not saying you guys have supported this kind of, this company particularly, right? But uh, that's a model of, of VCs, right? To, to get the great valuation and then to make money But from... Your observation is bang on. But the funny thing is, it hasn't been for let's say until 2011, 2012, when the money started getting printed a lot mm -hmm. and the dry powder went mm -hmm. into VC, that's when the VC industry started self-perpetuating with funding round after funding round and it became more over growth and storytelling at some point in the last seven, eight years perhaps. And it was about substance, but it was it, it didn't used to be like that. And I, and I think right now it's also not like that anymore. You know, we have always, as Fundamental, we have always been very strong in business fundamentals. We actually, in our portfolio of 60 companies, we have more than 12 that are net profitable, right? That's very unique within the VC asset class, but it's possible because our sector allows these companies to become net profitable earlier than it is in other sectors, perhaps. And other VCs, You know, peers of mine, friends of mine that look at other sectors, they look much more at business fundamentals and net profitability now as well. So what we're making fun of is really a, I would say, exception slash deviation of the time frame 2012 to 2022. But now we've seen a reset and people focus on fundamentals much more again. Mm -hmm. Oh, and would you like to touch uh, more on the unicorns? On unicorns? Yes. Okay. Um, Yeah, so second, second on the business model list uh, is procurement and supply chain. So 
Patrick, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, this category contains actually six unicorns um, from the US and from Asia. Um, it's the category where Asia has actually yielded more construction tech unicorns than wow. the US. And it's about through delivering equipment like machines um, mm. or materials in a marketplace type way, um, helping customers plan their supply chains much better, achieve and unlock better purchasing prices and have services on top that make it a very smooth experience in an industry that usually has rough supply chains, lots of supply chain disruptions. If you look into emerging markets on top, you might actually not know whether the quality of a good is, is what you need um, or whether the material will arrive at all. That's a real problem in emerging markets as well. And so these managed marketplaces they service um, that type of outcome with a very full service approach. Mm -hmm. What is very surprising to me uh, is that you're saying that there's more uh, construction tech in Asia than in the US, uh, actually. And like traveling through Asia, um, I can see that the products which are being built on site are just uh, they're just concrete. There's very poor quality. There's no <laughs> health and safety. Um, but there is. They, they do a lot of technology, apparently, right, um, behind it. Whereas in the US or Western world, uh, the sites look like beautiful. There's lots of health and safety stuff. All is kind of like, looks like it's a program schedule and it's, it's, it, it's, it's more uh, structured, I would say, right? So it's very interesting because this is something I, can't, I don't see uh, traveling day to day there. Maybe that's why these, these countries are developing unicorns because that's where <laughs> they focus in their resource. Yeah. It, it, it for sure is different problems that need to be solved. So there is a um, um, so what I've what I've learned by spending time in the AEC sector is that the supply chain. We, we kept saying right, construction is a supply chain business. Yeah. It's not an operations business. The supply chains mm -hmm. in the Western world, Europe, North America, Australia, they grew over 60, 70 years. Mm -hmm. And so that means they are, they are quite tightly integrated. They are not always integrated via software. That's what we always think. Oh, you know, you're not digital. You're not particularly efficient. That, that, that's, a, that's a fallacy. That's not the, role, the right way to think about it. You know, if, if I grew my supply chain over 70 years because I do business with the same person or the same company, over time, I know I can rely on them. I can rely on their quality. When they send me an offer, I know it will come on that day. It might not be mirrored in software, but it's a very reliable and efficient supply chain. Now, because it's not in software, it might not take the next level. I cannot run AI on it. So that's the problem of the Western world. In the emerging markets, Martin, that, that you refer to, they don't have that. They don't have the 60, 70 years of established supply mm -hmm. chains. They don't have those 60 to 70 years of established qualities and brands that stand for quality. And so that's where marketplaces like, mm. like Inframarket, like Zetwork, actually stepped in and said, hey, I'm going to give you a software-first uh, Western world-type supply chain experience um, as a full-service managed marketplace. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Brilliant. Okay, um, we'll, go, we'll quickly dive through the other three. Uh, renovation and one-stop shops. Right. Yeah, yeah so... Um, we all know Katera. So what this category is, is think of it like a Katera, but for interior design and for interior outfitting. This is a category that has yielded four unicorns to date, all of them a little bit older. It's not a hot theme anymore at the moment, but companies that have actually, especially in the Asian market, um, China, India, um, very strong margins and, and cash flows. But that's also because, I should call this out, 
in, uh, in India, in Indonesia, Philippines, Malaysia, China, typically when you buy a newly constructed building, you buy the raw structure and you have to interior outfit it as yourself, as a buyer. That's something that we don't have in the Western world. We purchase turnkey, right? Mm -hmm. So in China, when I buy uh, an, uh, an apartment, I literally get the raw structure and now it's up to <laughs> me to outfit it. So that, that's why I then go to Tobacco. Did you learn the hard way, Patrick? <laughs> no, I, I, I studied in China, so that's how I learned it, oh, but okay, not by cool. buying. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but so that's a clear difference, right? And so that's so exciting also about looking at AC tech from a global perspective because markets are different and yet you can learn so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, cool. Uh, financial services, number four. Yeah, so here we have two unicorns, Build Technologies in the US and Off Business in India. Um, and so these are businesses that help with um, tracking of cash flows, that help with finding debt, um, either for, for example, purchasing materials, financing my labor, or financing the overall construction project, and helping with software to actually access that debt and keep keeping track of it. Nice. And last but not least, the reason I'm rushing through these is because I think people will be more excited about the future. So uh, tech hmm. enabled contractors is actually quite an interesting one anyway. Yeah, so I mean, here the poster child for, for many years, um, uh, as an example of this, would be Katera. Um, now, we all know how that ended. I have my personal, uh, very opinionated view of why it ended that way, but let's save that for perhaps its After own hours. episode or so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, but, but there are three other companies that, that um, at the time we did this analysis fell into that. There was Icon, um, a large uh, 3D concrete printing company, um, but offering the homes, not the robot. So that's why it falls in here. Nexi, which is a Canadian company that has a proprietary material and an integrated modular construction platform, for example, for Starbucks retail outlets, quite interesting focus on, on a specific asset class. And, uh, and there used to be Vive in there, VEEV. -E Unfortunately, now they have actually announced that they will liquidate the firm. Mm. Yeah. Sorry, what is Vive? V-A-V-V? Yeah, Vive is, is um, I don't know if I do them justice by saying it, it's probably the closest comparison to Katera here. So, you know, um, mm -hmm. stick-based modular construction uh, platform for homes, for example. Okay. Mm, we'll come to modular. We have a few questions on that because it's actually a very interesting topic. Okay, so out of the, out of the models, uh, Patrick, what ones um, hyped that did not deliver the expected unicorn outcomes Ooh. yet? I would probably reference three. So I think... Uh, like 10 years ago within AEC, you saw a lot of like aerial mapping or drone-based mapping that saw a lot of funding and that one didn't deliver any big company or a company that would have like, you know, legendary status. So I think that's one. Two, a lot of like the first wave of innovation in AEC was hailed to be 3D concrete printing. Again, I don't think that that delivered necessarily the outcomes that people wanted. And the mm -hmm. third one, so here I'm quoting a friend of mine from another VC firm. They have done the analysis, a very large firm, uh, very successful at what they do. And he said to me, Patrick, in carbon accounting software, we actually think that there has been more money raised than there's market size. <laughs> I tend to accounting. agree with that. In yeah. Carbon accounting software. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That addresses a lot of like construction companies as well. And yeah, yeah. But what's the reason for that? I think it's uh, the, the push towards uh, sustainability, green kind of washing, whatever one can call it, um, which is driven not by entrepreneurs, I would say, but by regulation. Yeah. So this actually might, that would justify why so much money went there because it was people were told that, okay, you need to invest it, you need to pay attention to it. And that's why people feel that, okay, that's, uh, that's one of the factors that will uh, 
that will have to create you have to create a market around that to right. to, to get uh, and and build a software around it. Yeah, so uh, that's also so. interesting incentive. Yeah, because regulation is incentive. Incentive for sure, and um, some things in this world have very simple and stupid explanations, and this is one of them. In in uh, <laughs> um, in my mind, what I've been seeing is that this is a, a misalignment of incentives. To your point, Martin, between people who wanted to allocate capital on a very very large scale into green solutions or like mm -hmm. carbon reduction solutions, mm -hmm. they entrusted venture capital managers with mm -hmm. that, and now find me that, and the venture capital managers were incentivized to back software. Mm -hmm. because that's what their fund lifetime looked like. Um, that's what the whole fund model looked like. And so now you're giving me the capital that I should allocate into like green technology. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm used to software. Bam, yeah. carbon accounting software got way too much funding. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Tragic, I think. Tragic. <laughs> yeah. one, one, one thing um, that I just know, just picking up on this and reading your article, Patrick, was that these unicorns, only one of them was from Europe. Um, that's right. It's, yeah, in France, uh, which was Mano Mano. Why, why do you think that is? That's a good question. Um, who difficult to answer without revealing my position on the EU. Um, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yeah, political discussion a little, but, but, but I think there's a non-political part of the answer here, which is, um, in Asia, as well as the U S as like the number one venture market, Mm -hmm. um, we have a strong and steady supply of founders that have tasted success before in, in other sectors that build successful companies. Not always a unicorn necessarily. Sometimes you're exiting with a hundred million outcome and it's very life-changing. Happy days. Exactly. It's a difficult journey to build that business. You're learning so much and now you've tasted the success and then you go into a sector like construction and that helps you so much with your odds of succeeding. Now in Europe, compared to Asia and India, we, we don't have the same steady supply of previously successful founders um, and of those a portion going into construction tech. So I think that that's one of the non-political uh, mm -hmm. ingredients to, to this answer. Mm -hmm. Do you want to share a political one? And we'll just I don't. cut it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> All right, cool. So, um, Martin, do you have anything more on that? Because I would like to go to the future and where we think unicorn unicorns are coming. Yes, so I just wanted to get into kind of like uh, basics of venture capital and ask some very like uh, very basic questions, which uh, which would help both me, probably you, Owen, as well. No, I think <laughs> and we some should, other people. Let's, let's stick to the unicorn subject. Okay, and we'll we'll remap around. Uh, over to, uh, no, I prefer horses. I prefer horses. Okay, no, no, that was a silly joke. Um, no, I don't have anything to add to that. No, cool. Okay, so Patrick, so yeah, the future of uh, the unicorn model, like, what, what, give us a like, kind of, yeah, give us a spill. So look, I mean, first of all, whether we can build, um, like I said, perhaps earlier, five or ten times more unicorns within AAC technology, a lot of that will depend on the funding that is available to the sector. I think we've discussed all the proxies and all the data why at least we at Fundamental have conviction that exactly that is going to play out over the next few years. Um, so capital will be available. That that's a key assumption, but I think we we can we can have a high conviction in that. Two, I just mentioned, founders move from other sectors who have previously tasted success. Let me give you two examples, which are just mind blowing. So one of them is a European founder team from Spain, um, uh, Jose and Lucas. They previously founded Privalia, 
um, which is like the leading e-commerce platform for fashion in uh, in Spain, southern Western Europe. They sold that for 500 million, and now they build a company um, similar, you know, basically a vertical construction platform. Insanely difficult, but founders that have the experience. Another one is the founders of the founder team of Digital Ocean around Alec Hartman. Um, they build a cloud software unicorn, IPO'd that for five billion, and now they're building Welcome Homes, which is a platform where you can buy turnkey your entire home in the United States. So that's the second ingredient, right? Mm -hmm. Is that these founders that have tasted success is moving into the sector. And so third, um, I think we have the foundations in the sector now where, where software has been laid, data pools have been laid, they can now get integrated, and the customers are being prepared to actually change and buy. And so within this dynamic, what we actually spend a lot of time on, I guess that's that's where you want me to go here, Owen, where we spend a lot of time on is, for example, robotics. So workforce mm -hmm. shortage, real problem yeah. in the Western world. We love founders that fix robotics. We love data infrastructure. We love design stacks. And perhaps one, one thing that um, not many people have on their radar yet, we actively scout for uh, legendary or generational companies um, that help us fix the power grid. Because the amount of electrification that we do in the Western world is absolutely insane to the degree that I think neither politicians nor consumers actually have a clue of what kind of problem we're getting ourselves into with the whole electrification craziness. But okay, mm. it's opportune. Everybody wants to go that way. Let's go that way. That means we need uh, solutions to actually build out the infrastructure of our power grids at such an insane accelerated pace with the labor that we don't have, going back to robotics, and the materials we don't have in the Western world. So now we need supply chain solutions to actually find the materials and the components to build out our grid at such an accelerated fashion. So that, that's one of the perhaps more hidden spaces that we're spending a lot of time on. Can you elaborate a bit more on this power grid problem that you think uh, it's, it's going to happen? What, what is the problem actually that we want, we, we try to electrify everything and that's the, the issue? Okay. Yeah. So physically, I come from energy. So physically, mm. your power grid always needs to be balanced, right? So what you feed mm. in needs to be taken out, like in a very, very simple mm -hmm. way. And the power grid doesn't store energy yes. um, in itself. And so now when we, uh, when every one of us has an electric vehicle at home, that draws a lot of power from the grid that is actually mm -hmm. not laid out for that. And then we have a lot of intermittent generational uh, generation power, solar, wind, etc., that feeds in at the least opportune times. And mm -hmm. so now I have this huge imbalance in the grid that typically I balance through feeding in gas turbines to actually do uh, a balancing power or to tell a steel plant, hey, please switch off the plant and take some you know, uh, demand out of the grid or increase the steel plant and, and increase the demand for the grid. So that, that way mm -hmm. I balance this. Now, so far that has worked for 70 years, but the amount of just variables that we're introducing now in terms of more EVs, in terms of more decentral solar, in terms of more offshore wind, etc., it, it's just so variable at, at such a different magnitude that the grid will get into balancing capacity. And at the same time, I mean, German government took the completely idiotic decision to switch off nuclear power plants and instead think, let, let, let's bring in coal. And now we need even more gas turbines to actually balance the grid. So it, it's a very volatile cocktail that we're getting mm -hmm. ourselves into. Um, and for that, we'll need a lot of transformers. We need a lot of grid components. We'll need a lot of cables. Um, on every voltage level, high voltage, mid voltage, and low voltage. And so that's that's really a problem we're navigating ourselves into. And, and the Chinese are laughing at us because they are flooding the market with EVs uh, and mm -hmm. thinking, hey, 
these idiots in the Western market, they don't even realize not only are we killing their automotive industry, we're even <laughs> feeding their grid infrastructure problem and they are buying the EVs from us. It's insane yeah. on that level. Mm. Well, I'm glad you didn't go on the political tangent when we were talking. That was a little bit. That was a little bit. Geopolitical, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice. I can feel the passion. Uh, Patrick, have you guys at Fundamental, I think you mentioned you are an investor in InfraMarket. So you guys mm-hmm. do have a unicorn, or maybe even more. Like, do, do you have unicorns on your uh, portfolio? Yeah, InfraMarket is there. We have one other that is uh, valued just slightly under the unicorn uh, mm-hmm. level, also in the marketplace space. And a few ones that I think could get there in the next two years or so. Can we be cheeky and ask who they are? Who you think they might be? I mean, the, the best way to lose money as a VC is to make predictions. So let me not make <laughs> predictions. <laughs> oh, what a great answer. Okay, mm. you could tell us off air. Yeah. Um, all right, cool. Martin, let's go to your uh, VC 101. Yes. Yeah, so um, so pe- the way people invest in companies is, I, I guess, via uh, private equity or venture capital as an example of these two. So what are the differences between private equity and venture capital? What's differentiates these two? Um, so very great question. And actually we might have to uh, differentiate within VC early stage and growth stage venture capital because you the guys are early stage, right? Exactly. We do early stage. Um, so between early stage, um, VC and private equity. I, I listened, I think, to another episode of yours where someone said, look, I mean, it, it's more the human side, it's more relationship. I, I think that's generally right, but uh, I like to think of it slightly differently. So in private equity, what I underwrite is a business. I underwrite a market as well, but I first of all underwrite a business and a thesis what um, levers in the profit and loss statement and in the cash flow statement mm-hmm. I can under my own control optimize so that the value of the business goes up. And then if the market helps me as well, and there's some positive development in the market, great. I'll take that premium as well. So it's very much about optimizing. Exactly. And it's optimizing what you control. You you know what you look at, you have predictability, and you optimize what you control. In early stage venture capital, that's not what we do. So in early stage venture capital, I think what the most successful VCs in that stage do is they actually underwrite a thesis and then they underwrite the team that can execute against that thesis. I always like to say in in early stage VC, out of 10 things that can happen to you, you control four, you don't control the other four, and then two things you you actually didn't have on your roadmap at the time you invest. So it's very much about not controlling things, but investing in stuff that is so potentially large Mm-hmm. And the team that can execute on that and, and they can navigate all the uncontrollable stuff that will that will hit them along the way mm-hmm. that the one thing makes your entire return, right? So that's early stage VC. And, and I think the other guest that you had, you know, she was completely right. It's a lot about, um, uh, you know, the human connection and being able to work with your investor. But I think on a macro level, you invest or underwrite completely different things. Now, growth stage VC, I would argue, is much closer to private equity. Mm-hmm. Okay, so how do you start then? Like you, uh, you are a VC firm, and then how do you? What is what's your day look like? Um, how do you evaluate deals? How do they come to you? Uh, what's the like the first steps to when you when you, when someone is pitches to you? Um, as, I don't know SaaS software or uh, or an idea. Um, yeah, just give us give us a little bit of sauce how how you guys do it. 
So um, a quick, quick side note, uh, Martin, are you interested in what my day looks like compared to <laughs> what, for example, my investors on, on our team do? Because it's quite different. Mm. <laughs> uh, oh, what you're saying? You just sleep all day, Patrick, and everyone else. Not, not at all. I, I have shit on my plate, like doing audits with KPMG and stuff like that. But that's some, something nobody ever talks about, right? So they all think it's uh, meeting people and drinking wine and then uh, throw out some Dinner, money. Steaks. Yeah. 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 No. So like, what I'm what I'm interested in really is the evaluation of a of a founder or or idea or a business. What is uh, what the general due diligence process look okay. like, um, and how what um, what makes uh, what makes you make a decision? What makes you that make a decision uh, that I, you, I'm choosing to to invest within this part, this person, or this business? Okay, got it. Um, all right. So, look, perhaps the top-down answer first, and then we can unpack it a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, what what moves us to move on a on a team on a on a deal is that we see something exceptionally special that could make this become a generational company. Um, for us, it's very difficult to partner and invest in firms that you know are good businesses, but that can't make you know the the leap towards becoming a generational company because of all the risk that we take um, mm -hmm. and that the founders take, to be frank. Um, and so we are looking for for specialty now. Probably you're like, oh, well, Patrick, what does specialty look like? How can you framework? So it's not as easy, right? So you, you can't break out specialty mm -hmm. um, that way, but typically you find them in a few places. So we look for very strongly in technology. Um, is that a technology that is highly defensible, that is highly scalable? Um, coming back to something I said earlier, because technology is controllable. That's in our control, right? The market cannot move against me or regulation. I mean, very unlikely. So if I do my job there, I control the technology, right? So that's mm -hmm. one corner in which we look for specialty. The second one is for sure team. Uh, if you have an exceptional team, even in a too small market, it can be a very good bet to underwrite because they might find a way how to expand the market. So if I have a truly exceptional team, I spend less time on you know, worrying about the market or worrying about the competition just because I can underwrite that they will figure it out along the way. But that's for like truly, truly exceptional uh, founders, right? So that would be a second corner um, where you look. The third one, if you invest a little bit around the Series A stage, more than let's say the very first round, um, it's the margins and the cash flow of a company that we look in. We love fundamentals of businesses. Um, and so when we see like inframarket, when we invested, it was net profitable. Enter in Germany, which is a company that is growing exceptionally well, um, they were net profitable when we invested. So that's another corner where you can where you can look for something uh, special. And and there's others, right? But but in general, Martin, we look for special, and and can it become a generational company? Okay, so it does not uh, have to be like. I'll, I'll go on. on. Yeah, I was going to say, like, when, when, you do, when you say early stage, like, how far in the... Exactly in the my question. Yeah, like, oh, really? <laughs> Where are we? Like, are these guys, like, literally starting from zero or had they been going for a few years, got some traction, maybe put some of their own money in, raised money from family and friends, that kind of thing, like... Because yeah. you mentioned so, Series A as well, so that you invested in Series A, and that's called also early stage, right? That is exactly right. Okay, um, so where does it end? So, okay, the, the technical answer, like mm -hmm. what you would find, 
let, let's say in VC jargon, early stage would refer to everything, including the Series B stage, right? So a Series uh-huh. B stage for someone that, that doesn't know that terminology oftentimes means it's the third or fourth round where you sell shares. Yeah. So terminology is seed, Series A, Series B. At some point, someone clever thought, let's introduce pre-seed before seed. So that's when it got all murky. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what leads to the fact that oftentimes Series B would be a third or fourth financing stage, right? So that is early stage in terms of a technical definition. Mm-hmm. I personally don't like that because to your point, some company can actually be 10 years old, never raised capital, mm-hmm. is net profitable, mm-hmm. has perhaps three, four million of annualized revenue and now comes up for the first round. Is that a growth stage? Is that an early stage? It doesn't matter. It has product market fit. It probably has distribution market fit. It probably has founders that have gained some sort of defensible advantage in this industry. Would I as fundamental be excited to invest? Absolutely. Or at least to look at it? Absolutely. So that, that's where I think the, the technical definition of early stage is not particularly useful. I, I like to think of it more like how ready is the product? What risks are still in the business? What do I need to underwrite in terms of uncontrollable stuff and controllable stuff? And so oftentimes that would be a company that has just been founded or just did the the product, but it can also include companies that have been around for 10 years, but perhaps never raised the first round. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Okay. What are the differences between venture capital in construction and in other industries? Oh, Uh, A lot of them, I can tell you. I'll I'll give you my favorite anecdote. Um, So this was not directly construction, but energetic renovation and energetic upgrading. Very similar. Um, My favorite anecdote is one of my portfolio companies was in fundraising and one of the world's best VCs, like by brand or by reputation, who look at every sector under the sun. They are generalists, right? Mm -hmm. Ask them, what is a heat pump? And my founder was like, holy, how do I stop this meeting? Because, I mean, if I have to explain them what a heat pump is, uh, there's going to be so much about this industry that I will have to explain to them. And so I use this anecdote with a bit of levity, right, to say that um, I have full uh, sympathy for, for my investor friends who look at 100 different sectors over 360 days a year you know, med tech and biotech and ag tech, ag- agriculture tech, and then fishing marketplaces. <laughs> you, you can't be an expert in these markets you look at. So you only get an expert through routine, through practice, by looking at, at a sector multi, uh, multiple times. And now mm-hmm. construction, unfortunately, is the sector that has the most nasty details. I like to mm-hmm. say I can do this for 40 years and I will know 2% of the details in this sector. And so that's why, for example, we rely a lot on people who are actually from this sector in teaching us about it. That can be founders, that can be you know, friends from the community, et cetera. We know how to invest, but we don't know all the details. But because we spend repeatedly time in this sector, it becomes easier to know what you look for, what you ask for. Whereas a generalist VC, you spend a day a year in construction, you don't even know how to ask the question, right? So I think that's mm-hmm. a big, big difference, the nasty details. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's such a dense industry as well. That like so many things can come up. I don't know. I'm I'm kind of biased because I'm in it. But I was talking to my partner the other day. I was like, construction. There's just so much to it. Whereas finance, my simplistic view. Please don't kill me. Is that you're just changing numbers on the screen? So, mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, here's a funny anecdote. If 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 you like me to tell it um, about about nasty details, right? Uh, you can also cut it out. But in the UK, for example, I, I learned through a founder team that there is a payroll practice, um, mm-hmm. uh, actually a hiring and a payroll practice in, um, uh, in workforce for construction projects, which is dominated by so-called barons. 
I had never heard of it. And if I was a generalist VC, I, I wouldn't know how to Google it. But so what it is, is there's like these crew leaders that market the, the, their crew to construction projects. And they, you know, they're kind of a curator, if you want, because I know this Baron, right? Mm -hmm. And I know that the Baron has good crews and that the Baron yeah. is reliable. So I hire the Baron and the Baron gets the payroll and the Baron then takes a cut and distributes <laughs> yeah, yeah. the payroll to the crew. That's something you wouldn't have in Germany, for example, and for sure not in any other industry. So now if you're a generalist VC, how, how do you underwrite something like that? Because you've never seen it. And, and these are the nasty details that you have to deal with as an investor as well. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, interesting. Um, um, just like for time, a selfish question I wanted to ask. Like, obviously, Patrick, on the other side of the fence is uh, in the venture capital world, is you guys raising money from your investors? So, mm -hmm. it's a really simple and broad question. But how does that work? Like, why do people trust you to mm -hmm. uh, to go and like, <laughs> yeah, uh, give them a nice chunky return on their investment? Um, it's because they know me or be, they know my partners. So it's. Um, we we couldn't float uh, on a, on a um, public exchange and and expect to have the same result. It's very much because they they trust what we've been doing because they know us. Mm -hmm. That's how it started. Since then, we've built a pretty terrific track record uh, with Fundamental. Actually, with the latest fund, we're top decile worldwide in terms of the PitchBook benchmarks and Cambridge benchmarks. So um, it helps with the track record. But even then. To get introduced to someone or to trust a fund manager to put the first ticket, track record it only gets you so far. It's still like, do I know that person? Do I have a history with them? So uh, that, that's been the case for us, for sure. Network. Okay. I don't think we touched on this one. So um, how to spot uh, right business model or right idea for the VC model? Uh, and there are probably some great ideas which don't work well with the VC model, but they are great. But so how do you differentiate between like, okay, this is brilliant idea, but it's not going to work for us because of X, Y, Z. Um, yeah. Do you, do you look, do you look at things in this way? Very much. I mean, it's the underlying question I, I would say all the time. Um, and this won't be exhaustive, but, but perhaps to give three things that, um, can be a differentiator whether you should raise venture or not. So one, how big is the market, right? So if the mm -hmm. market is, th that's an internal view, but if the market is 50 billion or larger on a mm -hmm. continental scale, we get very, very excited. Now it should be a homogenous market. It shouldn't be like you're lumping things together. It should be a homogenous market. Then we get very excited. can be smaller than that, that we still get excited. But I'm just can giving you, you like what's, a- what's homo homogenous market in, in those terms? Like um, you, you can address them with the same product and through the same sales channels. Whereas, you know, you're addressing Luxembourg and then you say, oh, I'm, I'm tapping on the, the Spanish market, but really it's different customers yeah, yeah. at different channels. You're mm -hmm. fooling yourself, right? So yes. um, market can be smaller than 50 billion to mm -hmm. still get excited. But like that would be a threshold where we say, okay, like that, that looks very, very interesting. So that's one. Two, the technology needs to be highly differentiated and value accretive in your profit and loss statements. So sometimes you see a technology that is super defensible, but actually it creates no commercial benefit. Right. So it needs to be value accretive to the profit and loss statement and then highly defensible. Um, so that's the second thing that gets us um, extremely excited. And sometimes the third one, like I said, it, it's exceptional 
uh, founders. Now, there are other reasons, but if, if you don't have these ingredients, you, like you say, you can still build a very substantial company um, and you can perhaps just take a little bit longer to get there. And so the fact that, for example, a VC turns you down, it's it has nothing to do with whether you're a good company builder or whether you're building a good company. Like you say, Martin, it just means you're fitting right now not to that very specific VC mm -hmm. model. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Okay. Okay. I think um, we should probably move to some of the audience questions as well. So um, I put out a post on LinkedIn <clears throat> asking people for questions. Um, and I think one person asked a question and the rest of it was really just like taking the Clappy. mic out of how... Uh, yeah, VCs wear a Patagonia vest and Patrick actually is not wearing a Patagonia vest. So I'm glad you did that. Um, anyway, we'll shout out for... him. <laughs> yeah, we'll find a way to get a little logo on there somehow. Okay, so one was from um, um, Bragham. Um, so shout out to Bragan as well. He he runs a newsletter called uh, Last Week in Contact, which is a roundup of all like funding and uh, what's going on in the tech world and construction. So I would check that out if you haven't already. Um, but one of your portfolio companies is 011H. Is that how he? Okay, cool. Um, so essentially, I'll, I'll, I'll do it word for word. So it's a company of yours which offers a more efficient and sustainable way to build by using prefabricated components and digitized workflows to the industry. So they've started a construction company to deliver projects using their own technology. So this seems to be in response to a builder and their hesitation um, to adopt a new way of constructing and the difficulty selling the solution uh, for the first project because of the risk. So do you think this is a common thing that we'll see uh, in the future, like tech companies uh, or however, yeah, construction tech companies creating their own contractors to like actually see the tech being used? Um, yeah, so Bragan, thanks for the question. Um, you're right You're right with one part of what you say and not right with the other parts. So you're, you're right, 011H is, um, is a company that has a platform to help others um, build a timber-based constru uh, construction process and, and building. Think of it like an asset light Katerra. Asset light because different than Katerra, 011H doesn't have factories but they use instead suppliers from the network that they onboard onto their software, onto their um, building system, onto their components platform, etc. So it's more asset light than, than Katerra was, but generally the same space. So you're right about that. Um, what is not exactly correct is so um, O11H always had a construction company. So they, they weren't, you know, they, that, was not, that was not a change, but for the exact reason you point out. So the hesitation of contractors, for example, to work with this platform again, is a track record problem, right? Mm -hmm. And so until you have that track record to incentivize someone to trust you, that they can build with your platform with a better outcome, cheaper, more efficient, faster, blah, blah, you need to, you need to you know, finance it yourself or you need to do it yourself. And so that's, that's been uh, the case from day one for O11H. Um, but... They are transitioning into the non-contractor model as we speak, where actually construction companies want to build with the O11H supply chain, software, etc. So at some point, once we succeed with this, O11H will only be the, the supply chain network and the supply chain platform. But until then, you have to have the balls to actually, excuse my French here, but to actually you know, build that track record yourself. And yes, I do think that's a general model in construction and many other spaces 
because it creates those instant outcomes and it taps into existing PL line items, what we discussed before. Yeah, yeah, that's brilliant, actually. Yeah. Because you actually, if, if, if a company has a contractor as well within themselves, they have to prove by using their technology that what they are suggesting, proposing, it makes sense and it's probably more commercially viable for the client as well, right? Who is paying for it. So Martin, it's, a, it's a beautiful use. It's a beautiful example of, of, the, of, of implementing this. It's such a brilliant comment that you just made because the, when you talk to Lucas and Jota, the two founders... Um, they actually set up the company exactly that way. So if you were to look at the board documents, you would see two companies within one. One is called the design company and the other one is called the construction company. And they even do NPS scores between the two companies because they consider the design and software part of the company as a service provider to the contractor company. And so the contractor company gives them feedback on what works very well and <laughs> what doesn't meet their expectations. It's a brilliant comment because okay. that's exactly what's happening. Excellent. Okay, another one we had from Prakash. Um, so yeah, so modular construction. This seems to be a continual hot topic, but why do we think modular construction tech companies can't seem to survive? So most recently, uh, I think this was in the last month or so, we had um, sad news about modulus, but in the last oh, year really? or so, yeah, we had uh, Ilk Homes, um, Legal and General Homes, and even Urban Splash, which might have been away before that. And just to add, like modulus... Um, in September 2022, raised a Series A of 10 million, and then within, let's say, 13 months or so, uh, full, 15 months, they are have gone bust. So, what do you think is, the is, is with this modular? safe news? Because uh, I'm not sure it I've is. heard it. Yeah, yeah, it's public. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah, it's very very recent development. Like literally within the last 30 days or so. But I did research before, and it's definitely on the on the main sites. Okay, so pra Prakash, to your, to your question, what, what is attractive or unattractive about modular? So I, I think what's attractive to us as fundamental, let me speak to that, is when modular combines either a asset-light supply chain model like O11H, because that could potentially be extremely scalable, but also because it leverages the competencies that are already in the supply chain. That's one of been my big gripes with the Katerra model. And Michael Marks and I have emailed over this actually a little bit. <laughs> I um, Leak it. We need to leak this email. No, 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 no. I feel like a very, hacker news gossip. <laughs> it, it was very instructive for me how he thought about Katerra and I shared a few views with him as well. But, but so that was mm. one of my big gripes is that it didn't use the competencies that are in the sector, in the supply chain. So either when you're a modular platform, I like you to be asset light and use those competencies. And that's actually more the automotive model that, in my opinion, Katerra always was. Because if you're an automotive supplier, you have what? You have the brand. Mm -hmm. You have the design of your car platform. You have the software today. And you have assembly competencies and the ability to orchestrate a supply chain. But man, you don't produce the headlights, right? Yes. So th that's, I think, much closer to what an automotive model in construction would look like, is an asset light platform mm -hmm. in modular. So that's one avatar of what I like. The other one, if you go asset heavy, I love robotics in this. Mm -hmm. So that's, for example, where Mighty Buildings in our portfolio comes in, is they have automated 85% of how their specific building design for multifamily homes gets built through robotics. And so that can make a lot of sense if you can pull it off. Now, what's unattractive about these models is that typically you need a lot of capital until you really see 
revenue or you can start with revenue earlier but you might not have the margin structure that a traditional business in your industry would have and so that's very scary to a financial investor um is you know because things can go haywire within a year or so of mismanagement or not meeting your targets and then a lot of capital has been burned mm -hmm. and it's not the traditional zero marginal cost uh, business that you would get with a software business. So I think that's that's the part that is a bit scary, but it can be exceptionally offensible um, and very differentiated. Interesting. Okay, um, Martin, should we go to off topic? Well, a good one, uh, actually, which is still on topic. But uh, so you mentioned investors earlier. And so what makes an exceptional investor? You are obviously one of them. But what are the features of a person, <laughs> know, personality or curiosity? Um, yeah, give us free books which we should read <laughs> to become ones. <laughs> um, actually, I don't read books, so th th this is something that is. Uh, that, so this is gossip, but now I confirm <laughs> it. I actually don't read books. I think except wow. I, I do read fiction books. I don't read non-fiction books. I should say mm -hmm. um, because I think they are the the most inefficient version of make a point. But uh, that's mm. personal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I tend to that, agree. Yeah. Um, so I, I, sorry, I, ma I mentioned this, Martin, because I can't make book recommendations. I'm, I'm literally no. very, very bad at that. Um, That's fine. That's fine. but so what I, what I think, um, a good early stage investor is, is number one, it's someone that is extremely decisive based on, based on heuristics that are unique to that person. Right. So heuristics like, Hey, I have whatever a checklist or a framework. And once, uh, you know, a founder team hits that very likely you're not going to hit a strong investment case if your heuristics is simple like that. But but you oftentimes would have heuristics that are more macro-driven, um, more on a thesis um, about a specific sector and macro, and then looking for like the controllable elements, like the technology, like the founder team, that could deliver against that macro trend and that mega shift. I, I think mm -hmm. that's one component. And the other one is, in my opinion, um, the human factor of working with your founders um, is extremely difficult um, because you're likely to hit adversity. And when things go very well, it's easy to collaborate um, yes. quite well. But when things go against each other or when you're hitting adversity, um, it's so volatile that you can turn on each other or, or you mm. know, you could you could have perhaps in the shareholder group some distrust against each other and so i think the ability to communicate effectively stand to your word be extremely transparent straightforward with where you're thinking where you stand and giving founders that level of certainty that they always know where this one founder where this one investor in their camp what they are thinking i think that is very very important and and you know it's um i like this management philosophy Descent and commit. The best investors that you can have are the ones that are openly dissenting with you. But once you've taken a decision, even if it's against that investor's view, the investor is committed to your decision. Like that's mm. what I think makes the best investors is they dissent and commit. That's interesting. Brilliant. So as you, uh, w w how would you classify yourself? Are you like more macro orientated? Uh, how are you wired as a macro investor or my, more like a micro investor? I, I look for mega shifts. Yeah. So okay. It, it, sometimes the mega shift can can be on a slightly lower level than than like uh -huh. super macro, but but generally would be you know I look for macro mega shifts like workforce shortage leads me to look into robotics. Mm -hmm. So how then you um, how then you um, progress within this micro shift world? How do you stay agile and uh, 
and curious within uh, macro investing as you nope. if you don't read books <laughs> <laughs> it, it's always founders teaching me honestly okay. i mean it's uh, yeah absolutely yeah um, I, I always like to say that the founder knows a thousand times more than any of his shareholders. Because, uh -huh. you know, as a founder, you're dealing with the realities in the trenches day to day. You take 10, 10 decisions every day, small decisions, big decisions. So you have way more information about your specific business than any shareholder can have, even one that is vertically focused like me. Um, so I, I like to think I have a hundred times more information than perhaps a generalist VC, but I will still have a hundred times less than the founder in their specific business. Um, so for me, the founders educate me a lot. And, you know, we meet as fundamental between 3,000 to 4,000 Construtech uh, founding teams every year. Um, and so I feel like we're doing hopefully a good job of and, and doing them justice of understanding what they do. Three or 4,000, you said? Three to 4,000, yeah. So that's wow. 10, 10 a day, right? Across the team. Yeah, not across one person. Yeah, that's a lot. Who's your uh, biggest inspiration when it comes to investing? Um, and why Warren probably, Buffett? I was going to say, you probably wanted me to say <laughs> Warren Buffett. Um, <laughs> um, so someone that I, I don't think they know I admire them. So this, this will be me, uh, well, whatever, saying it the first time um, on record. But, but I think what the point nine founders, Pavel, Christoph, and now since they have also taken on Louis and, and Ricardo, I think what they have built as a global yet somewhat vertically specific early stage investment firm is like the perfect way of building a VC. And they have the track record, obviously, they have a reputation with the founders, but I think the fundamentals that they follow, um, we can we can go into that, but, but I subscribe to a lot of the principles with which they have built the firm, and, and we're building it similarly here in Fundamental. What's it called, sorry? Point. Uh, so the firm is Point Nine, and, and the two founders are Christoph Jans and, and Pavel. Interesting. Um, which, if you were to have one person on your board, who would it be and why? Pavel, Christoph, and... <laughs> um, can, can I respond with something outside the box here, on? Of Go course. For it. So I don't believe in boards. I believe in governance, but I think governance can be achieved without boards. I, I think boards are, again, one of the least efficient ways of actually... Uh, fostering oversight and dissent, right? So I think there are better ways of fostering oversight and dissent than boards. And so I don't believe necessarily as much in, in boards, while I do very much believe in governance and I believe very much in dissenting and commit. Mm -hmm. Very nice. Okay. If I can keep this subject of boards just for a second, actually. So when you invest in a company, are you, are you becoming a board member uh, or not? So most of the times, no, um, that has two reasons. One, we actually think that most of the collaboration that should happen um, should be a daily to weekly collaboration. And for us, the, mo the modus operandi is typically in WhatsApp, where the founders work with us when, when they need something, when they want to discuss something, uh, et cetera. And the board cycles, when they are quarterly, especially, but even if you have like six weekly boards, which is not the norm, um, it's too long to typically um, have like decisions and, and a good discussion um, in the early stages. That works way better if you're in the growth stage of your business. Like then I think that that tool of a board meeting uh, works really well. So that's one reason. And the second reason um, uh, that we don't take board seats usually, we do take board observer seats, but, but that's more for a governance function. Um, the reason why we don't take board seats is also because um, we have some tax regime in, in Germany where our funds are domiciled that uh, 
mandate that if, for example, someone in Foundamental were to take a board seat in an Anglo-American jurisdiction, mm -hmm. um, the German government would tax us differently because they think we are part of the management. Whereas in the Franco-German uh, jurisdictions, the role of a board is just governance. And so this is now tax technicalities, but that's another mm -hmm. reason why we don't like to take board seats. Okay, thank you. Man, should we pick one more each? Yes, go for yours. Okay, like we talked about the pretty side of VC and uh, like it all sounds great. <laughs> I'm going to leave you with this bomb. No, I'm just kidding. Um, okay, so obviously there is there's that time. So um, I think something like, I'll just preface this question with something I was reading uh, to back to some statistics to back it up because there's a lot of whispers about what happens, but here's some hard facts. So according to Venkap, um, between 1986 and 2018, 53% of companies returned less than the investor put in, 19% returned between one and two times, 16% between two and five times, and just 12% returning five times uh, the amount. Obviously, as a VC, you're going for that big like return, maybe even in excess of 5x, right? So... So like when, when things are not going great uh, and, and a company is like you've invested in them and uh, uh, the article where I got that fact from is refers to these companies as orphans, VC orphans. Um, how do you deal with that? Like what, what advice do you give to the founder? Uh, yeah. And what happens? Um, so two philosophies that I think we, we put into practice at Fundamental. One, always be straightforward with the founder, be transparent about where you stand. It can change when you where you stand because, you know, together with the founders, you are discovering more things, you're finding more information. But once you have that, you know, be as direct as you can. I think that's a very German DNA that, that we have and our founders seem to love it. Sometimes at first it can, can, can feel a little bit um, <laughs> scary perhaps, mm -hmm. um, especially to perhaps if, if you're, you know, not as extrovert as I am, for example. Um, but overall, it's always appreciated because you know how to take decisions and, and you feel like you have a trusted person in your corner that, that will not hide things that are, you know, uncomfortable truths from you. So that's one. Um, and the second one is we actually... Um, have given a lot of our firms um, new rounds when they perform well. And even if they don't perform well, what we need to see is a pass by the management team to fixing the issues and still to making it a legendary company. Now, what is difficult is to continue funding a company that doesn't commit to still being great, right? So if you want to keep going after you have burned random number, let's say you've burned 2 million and now you're committing to yeah, perhaps I can get a 5 million outcome, but now I need another 2 million to get there. There's no investment case, right? So you're going to get the entire outcome of what the company has been receiving. So at that point, you need to be very front with, upfront with the founders, quite respectful, but direct. Tell them where you're standing and that it doesn't make sense for anyone to keep going that way. That's exceptional cases. But as long as the management team commits to a plan to still generate a generational company, we will actually present lead term sheets for the follow-on rounds and keep funding our winners. Mm -hmm. yeah, nice. Okay, thank you. So I will end very lightly. Creativity and change. How do you stay creative in your work? I, I don't know how creative I really am, Martin. Um, but <laughs> uh, so I think on the on the analysis side and, and investing, 
the, I guess, fortunately, the amount of creativity that is required to be a good investor is not that high because we typically like to stay in the moment and not in the future. Mm. When it comes to my article writing that, that I love to do, but right now I have too short time. So mm -hmm. there it comes more into like the hypothesizing and creative thinking. And for me, the biggest inspiration is, you know, collecting information from other people that smarten me up and then perhaps reassembling the information in a different, unique kind of take that I hope to find. So um, for me, the inspiration is, you know, founders. People. Okay. Okay. So um, Patrick, yeah, any closing words and um, where people can find out more about, uh, well, if we need to say this more about you. Yeah, so I look with Fundamental, we're the early, largest global early stage investor in AEC technology. You can find us on fundamental.com. You can find me on LinkedIn um, or you type into Google AECVC, then you will also find me and always happy to hear from you. We're, we're very supportive uh, investors. Even if we don't come uh, into a partnership with each other, we'll, we'll still be there for you and try to help you. Awesome. Cool, thank Patrick. You thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Bricks and Bytes podcast. If you are enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We really appreciate it. And we'll catch you in the next episode.